Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hey, welcome to Red Rum Blonde. Super excited to announce that the episode of Mysterious Circumstances that I guested on has posted. This is one of my favorite podcasts, and Justin always does a great job on every episode. He works really hard. I personally love his Jesse James episodes, and the ones he did on Wyatt Herb are really good too. Seriously, check all his backlog out. The one we did together was on the murder of Tiffany Jenks. And we really go down the rabbit hole on this case. At first, her death seems really straightforward, but then some really strange details start to emerge. And it really gets you wondering and asking a lot of questions. I posted a link on the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page in case you want to check that out. And on that same note, please join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. This week, we had a slew of new members, so I want to welcome Antoinette, Lacey, Michelle, Heidi, Jennifer, Chris, Anna, and Sarah. I'm really happy that you guys joined the group and hoping we have some more new members in the future. I also guested on another podcast that I'm a big fan of. It's called Ignorance Was Bliss. And Kate is one of the best people out there. I was so thrilled to be on this. It's really cool for me to actually talk to the podcasters that I listen to. She said it'll be posting sometime this month, so I'll let you know for sure. And in the meantime, check out her podcast. You'll love it. 
Kate's really smart, funny, and really in the know about a lot of different things. You'll really enjoy her podcast. And when Kate asked me to be on, she wanted to know, you know, what we could talk about, what maybe my favorite true crime subject was. I have to admit that I'm oddly fascinated with beheadings and maybe axe murders, although I didn't say this to her. But the one I'm really fascinated with is serial killer Ted Bundy. And this is especially after reading Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. I think a lot of times when we think about serial killers, we envision some type of guy like John Wayne Gacy or Gary Ridgway, these creepy, unassuming men. I mean, rarely do you ever expect a killer to be handsome, charismatic, and intelligent. That just seems like something that's made up out of a movie. To me, that's what makes Ted Bundy so fascinating. I can totally see how someone could become his victim. And these attributes make him all the more terrifying. Kate and I discussed the end of his killing spree in Florida. And Kate felt like most people focus on the beginning of his murders and less on the end, and I totally agree with that. The Chi Omega and the Florida killings are beyond brutal and scary. To prepare for the podcast, I had to brush up on those events, and it led me to something really interesting. Could Bundy have had other unknown victims? This week, I'll talk about other possible victims of serial killer Ted Bundy. You know, with him being one of the most famous serial killers out there, many people are very familiar with Bundy, so I won't go over his crimes extensively. But I will go through these other possible victims in a timeline, starting from the early days of his life to the later parts. And in that discussion, I'll try to give you an idea of where he was and what other murders he might have committed around that time. Theodore Robert Bundy admitted to 30 murders, but claims the death total may be in the three digits. His reign of terror covered seven states from 1974 to 1978. He was executed in Florida on January 24, 1989, where any potential confessions to other victims went to his grave. Because he alluded to so many other murders, we do have to wonder... Were there other victims? To give you a quick overview to his early life, he was born on November 24, 1946, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont, to 22-year-old Louise Cow. Baby Ted spent the first three months of his life there being cared for by nurses. His mother had returned back to Philadelphia to live with her parents, and reportedly she never intended to retrieve him, intending to give him up for adoption. And his mother never definitively stated who his father was. His birth certificate states that it was a salesman named Lloyd Marshall, but later on she said it could have been a sailor named Jack Worthington. But many suspect that it may in fact have been Louise's own father, Samuel Cow. He was a very harsh man, feared by many, including his own family. One of his daughters referred to him as a tyrant. Neighbors recall seeing him swinging cats by their tails. The religious man was very strict with his family, but little Ted adored him. I bring all this up because I think that this man had a really big influence on Ted Bundy's life and subsequent actions. I definitely think this man had some mental issues as well as Ted. And if you add to that the potential emotional, physical, and even possible sexual abuse, you create a monster. 
Louise's parents led Ted to think that they were his parents and that she was his sister. There's really no surprise there. That was kind of the era. In those days, if you were an unwed mother, it brought a lot of shame to your family and yourself. So it was much easier to live a lie than to hear the neighbors talk. Very early into his childhood, Ted exhibited some really odd behavior. There's a famous story about his aunt waking up from a nap to find that her nephew had positioned all the kitchen knives on the bed face towards her as he stood smiling in the doorway. Kids do a lot of weird things, but I can't say I've ever had an encounter like that one. Around the time that he was four, Ted and his mother moved to Tacoma, Washington to live with his great-uncle Jack. And then not long after, Louise married Johnny Bundy. And Tacoma is the site of what many think is Ted's first unconfirmed murder, that of Anne-Marie Burr. The Burr family lived a few miles away from the Bundys. And the night of August 30th, 1961, was just a typical one for the Burr family. They put their four children to bed. Little Anne-Marie shared a room with her sister, three-year-old Julie. And Julie's arm was in a cast at the time from a recent accident. That cast caused her a lot of grief, leading Anne-Marie to wake her parents up in the middle of the night on Julie's behalf. Then around 5 a.m., Mrs. Burr awoke to check on Julie, only to find that her other daughter... Eight-year-old Anne-Marie was gone. Both the front door and the living room window were wide open. There was a garden bench found moved in front of that open window, and on the windowsill was a size 7 sneaker shoe print, which led police to believe that someone may have entered through the window. Neighbors did report seeing a peeping Tom a few days before the disappearance. Police speculated that the intruder led Anne-Marie out the front door, which was why it was open. The hunt for the missing girl became the largest search in that city's history. Even the National Guard was brought in, but the little girl was never found. So during his incarceration, right before his execution, Bundy alluded to responsibility of this murder to Detective Robert Keppel. Keppel had first encountered Bundy when he investigated the disappearance of two women at Lake Sammamish State Park back in 1974. And he became very familiar with his crimes after working on a task force focused on them. So when women began disappearing and being found near the Green River, Keppel knew he had a new murderer to find. And that's when Bundy wrote to Keppel, offering his services to help catch the killer. These interviews are what inspired writer Thomas Harris to write Silence of the Lambs. He based Hannibal Lecter on Ted Bundy. Bundy gave Keppel advice on how to nab the Green River Killer. The killer of 48 sex workers, Gary Ridgway, was eventually caught. Keppel spoke to him again at the end of his life, and that's when this insight into the murder of Anne Marie arose. Bundy had this weird way of talking about hypothetical situations or speaking of crimes that he might have committed as if he were speaking about someone else. So while talking to Keppel, he talked about a serial killer committing murder, saying, you know, when he's 15, it'd be a much more mystical, exciting, intense, overwhelming experience than when he's 50. But alas, Bundy never directly confessed to her death. He did say that these are the crimes that a serial killer would never admit to, such as the murder of a young child at a very young age and close to home. Ted was around 14 at the time and the local paper boy who lived just miles from the Burr home 
and Anne-Marie knew him. In fact, some say she was enamored by him, following him around. So it's very feasible that he could have let her out of the home that night. Even the girl's father thinks that he saw Ted nearby in a construction ditch on that morning. However, Anne-Marie's mother doesn't think Bundy was responsible. There was another suspect at that time, a 17-year-old boy who was never officially named. But neither Bundy nor the boy were ever charged. But one has to seriously consider Ted Bundy as a suspect. This would have been easy access for him. Plus, he had a habit later on in his kills of very effectively hiding bodies. And maybe he learned this with his very first kill. He denied any involvement with the little girl's vanishing, though. The next suspicious deaths that occurred before his official listed kills happened on June 23, 1966. United Airlines stewardesses and roommates Lonnie Trumbull and Lisa Wick, both 20, were found bludgeoned in their apartment. A third roommate returned home thinking that the two were just asleep, only to find the women had been bludgeoned with a piece of wood. Lonnie was dead, and somehow Lisa survived. She suffered from permanent memory loss due to multiple fractures on her skull. Both of the women were from Portland, Oregon, and had only graduated airline training school six weeks previously. It was found that the killer had entered through a basement door. Police recovered the women's purses, but never specifically said where. And you want to know where all this occurred? Seattle, Washington. A place at that time in his life, Ted Bundy definitely was. He was there attending the University of Washington. And he also worked at the nearby Queen Anne Safeway stocking shelves. While doing my research, I read that Safeway is pretty big on customer service. It's a supermarket store, I think mainly on the West Coast. I'm from the East Coast, so I've never heard of one. But you have to consider that Bundy might have been there and encountered the women at this Safeway. Think about it. He might have carried their groceries to their car. He could have easily followed them back to their residence. And the manner in which they were attacked is eerily similar to one of his later attacks at the Chi Omega sorority house. This was in Florida years later. If you're not familiar, Bundy entered that sorority house late at night and attacked four women with a piece of wood he found behind a building. Fingerprints were found at the apartment that Lonnie and Lisa shared, but they weren't linked back to him. But it's also very well known that that crime scene wasn't well secured. In fact, many people trampled through and including a photographer. So those prints could have belonged to anyone. And the way they were murdered really sticks out to me. I mean, you have to think about it. Not many killers go around bludgeoning people with logs or wood. Let's also remember that this was eight years before his first recorded murder of Karen Sparks in 1974 and the next following murder of Linda Ann Healy, which was a month later. It's also important to note that it's before he met and dated the woman that most think he modeled his victims on, Stephanie Brooks. Those two met and started dating in 1967 when they both attended the University of Washington. She ended their relationship and he was apparently crushed. Reportedly, she wasn't happy with his lack of ambition in life. In 1973, they gave it another go, and the relationship was back on. And by this time, he was a changed man. 
he'd graduated with a psychology degree and gotten everything together. Not only was he working on the re-election campaign of Washington Governor Daniel Evans, he was trying to get into law school. Stephanie Brooks, which is a pseudonym, by the way, and Bundy spoke of marriage. Oddly, in 1974, that very pivotal year, Bundy abruptly ended the relationship. He told others of how proud he was of himself for being able to get her back and then be the one to leave her. He held a very enormous grudge for her dumping him. Stephanie was beautiful, with dark hair parted down the middle, which, sound familiar? Yes. This is the description of most of his victims. All of his victims were pretty much white women around college age with dark hair parted down the middle with some few exceptions. And many authorities on Bundy say that she was the model. You know, maybe he was in the act of killing her over and over again. Maybe, maybe not. Those two women were killed before he met Stephanie Brooks. So, if he is responsible, what drove him to these murders? Certainly not revenge based on this failed relationship. I think his murders were never that simple. So the next suspected deaths are more of a stretch considering they were on the other side of the country, but nevertheless many think were his work. No one was ever apprehended for these murders. It was the murders of Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, both 19, in May of 1969. Those crimes occurred in New Jersey, and Bundy was in Philadelphia apparently at the time attending Temple University. The two women left Ocean City in early morning hours of May 30th, 1969. They were on this big road trip that would include seeing the Jersey Shore, Camp Hill, and then they were off to see Susan's brother. They were seen eating breakfast at Summers Point Diner, and then they were off to an early start. It was around 6 a.m. when they hit the Garden State Parkway. Around 10 a.m., the convertible that they'd been riding in was found at the side of the highway, abandoned. A state trooper had it towed without knowing why it was left there. The impounded car arose suspicion when police realized it had been there the whole weekend. After they returned to the site where it was originally found, they soon discovered the bodies of the young friends about 200 feet into the woods under a pile of leaves. One was completely nude, the other with frayed clothing. Both were covered in welts and bruises and had been sexually assaulted and they had also been stabbed to death. The women's fathers were both prominent businessmen who had the means to search for the girls in a helicopter when they were initially missing. Their destination was Durham, North Carolina, to go see the graduation of Davis's brother, Wesley. And when they didn't arrive, the families knew that something was very wrong. Bundy admitted to being in Ocean City at the time and alluded to abducting a woman on the boardwalk. When interviewed, his aunt in Philadelphia declared that Ted couldn't be the culprit because he'd been in a car accident and had a big cast on his leg. But oddly, there aren't any records of any such accident. And one thing we all know about him is that he had a habit of feigning injury to lure his victims into his car. When he was speaking of one victim one time, he said, I asked her to help me carry this briefcase, which she did, and we walked back up the alley. When we reached the car, I knocked her unconscious with the crowbar. There was a forensic psychologist named Arthur Norman 
who said Bundy admitted to killing the women to him when he worked on Bundy's defense team in 1986. However, Bundy's former lawyer... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Kelly Nelson denied this. But it makes you think of many instances when he faked an injury. After Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared in Washington on the way to her dorm, Several women came forward with descriptions of a man with his arm in a sling, asking for help carrying his books to his Volkswagen Beetle. Brenda Carroll Ball was last seen outside the Flame Tavern in Seattle, talking to a man with his arm in a sling. She was never seen alive again. When George Ann Hawkins disappeared after walking down an alley outside her boyfriend's dorm, several witnesses came forward telling of a man in that same alley on crutches with his leg in a cast, struggling with a briefcase asking women for help. And the daylight abductions of Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Nasland at Lake Sammamish State Park. Both women were seen talking to a young man, going by the name Ted, with his arm in a sling. All of these women are known victims of Bundy. The next death has a very interesting possible connection to Ted Bundy. On July 19, 1971, the body of a 24-year-old schoolteacher, Rita Coran, was found. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled to death. The evening of her murder, her roommates, Beverly and Carrie, went out for the night, and Rita stayed behind in the apartment. When they returned around 1 a.m., they assumed that Rita was asleep. But when one roommate went into her room, she found Rita dead on the floor. She'd been beaten on the head and face and left naked. Her underwear was on the floor very close to her. So not only was the method of her death similar to other Bundy killings, but the location is also one of great interest. In addition to being a school teacher, Rita also worked at the Colonial Motor Inn, which was right next door to the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers. Sound familiar? It's in Burlington, Vermont, where Ted was born. 
The only concrete evidence of him possibly being in the area was a dog catcher's report of a person with the name Bundy being bitten by a dog that same week. His former friend, writer, and role speculated that he was responsible since his whereabouts at that time were uncounted for and she knew he was traveling at that time. And Rita apparently also bore a striking resemblance to Stephanie Brooks. But, you know, this may all be coincidence. I say this because the next murder possibly linked to him happened only a few days later and happened in Washington State. Joyce LePage disappeared from the campus of Washington State University at that time. Her body was found nine months later, deep in a ravine. Found with her skeletal remains were pieces of a green shag carpet from Stevens Hall at the university. That abandoned building was frequented by Joyce. While it was being renovated, she would go inside to write letters or play piano. Her apartment was just a few blocks from the building, and this is where she was last seen by friends. Ironically, it was those same friends who warned her about hanging out in the abandoned building, saying it could be dangerous. Because her remains were found a year later, it was kind of unclear how she died. There were wounds made possibly from a knife found on her ribs. And there were reports of someone matching Bundy's description in the area where she was found. We also know that he liked to revisit his victims' corpses. And he was in the state around that time. So now we go to Oregon in 1973. As we know, Oregon is right by Washington. Rita Lorraine Jolly left her home on Horton Road in Westland, Oregon around 7.15 p.m. on June 29th when she went for a walk. She was never seen again, and her body was never found. Another woman who disappeared at the same time, who was never found, was Vicki Lynn Holler. Vicki lived in Eugene, Oregon. She was last seen leaving her job as a seamstress. Her co-worker saw her get into her black Volkswagen. Vicki was supposed to meet a friend at 8 p.m. to go to a party, but she never showed up. Before I go on, we must consider that other people may be responsible for these missing women. For many years, the family of Catherine Devine believed that Bundy killed their daughter. With her long, dark hair, she definitely fit the profile. She was last seen by French hitchhiking in Seattle towards Oregon. Her body was found in December, her throat slashed, her pants cut open in the back from the waist to the crotch. But due to advances in DNA, authorities were able to identify William E. Cosden Jr. as her actual killer. Cosden had been found not guilty by reason of insanity in the rape and murder of a girl in Maryland. And that death was very similar to Catherine's. So even though she looked like many of his victims, Bundy was not the killer in this case. Cosden or Bundy may have also been the killer of Brenda Joy Baker, who disappeared seven months after Catherine Devine. Brenda had been hitchhiking from her home in Fort Lewis, Washington. Her body was found in a state park. Her throat had been slit too. Both men have been suspects in these strange deaths. 19-year-old Sandra Jean Weaver was last seen in Salt Lake City, Utah, on July 1, 1975. Her body was found by the Green River, She'd been raped and strangled. Bundy confessed to eight murders in Utah, so this one's very feasible. But there wasn't much information out there about this case. 
In October of 1974, remains of two women were found in Dole Valley near Vancouver, Washington. One wasn't identified at that time, but the other was that of Carol Platt Valenzuela. Martha Morrison wasn't identified until 2015. A longtime suspect, Warren Leslie Force, DNA was matched to Morrison's. So I think Bundy was a suspect because of the girl's hair and the fact that they were hitchhikers. But it definitely sounds like Forrest is the killer. On April 15, 1975, another hitchhiker went missing. A month later, the body of Melanie Suzanne Cooley was found in Coal Creek Canyon. She had been bludgeoned, possibly with a stone. And she died from a blow to the head and strangulation. Her hands had been tied in front of her with a nylon cord. Like many of Bundy's victims, she had repeated blows to the head so much so that one of her contact lenses was missing. She'd lived with her family in Nederland, Colorado. She was a real outdoors person and loved camping by herself. Once while camping, she'd narrowly escaped a bear who raided her camp. Her mother remembers the jacket that she was wearing the last day she saw her, that same day that she was murdered. Susie, as she was known, had long dark hair which was pinned up. And she hated taking the bus, so she often hitchhiked home from school. You have to remember, of course, this was the 70s, and hitchhiking was definitely the thing. I remember being a very young child then, and my grandfather was always picking up hitchhikers. But hindsight is twenty twenty, right? No one saw the car that she got into that day. Her report card was found inside her coat, and her clothes were bloody and torn. Bundy was definitely in Colorado at that time. Gas receipts place him in nearby Golden on the day she disappeared. In January of that same year, in Aspen, he had abducted Karen Campbell from the Snowmass Wildwood Inn. A month later, her naked corpse was found near Owl Creek Road, and she, like others, had been bludgeoned and probably strangled. She was a nurse who had come to Aspen with her fiancé, who was a doctor, attending a medical conference. So this is after all his killings in Washington, Oregon, and Utah. He killed three women altogether in that state, and four if you count Susie Cooley. He was famously jailed and escaped twice in that same state. Another death in Colorado possibly attributed to him was that of Shelley K. Robertson. On June 29, 1975, Shelley went missing. Her body was found seven weeks later in a mine shaft. When asked if he had anything to do with her murder, Bundy simply stated, I don't want to talk about that. Bob Denning, the investigator in the case, is 99% sure Bundy is her killer. Shelley had failed to show up for work that day. Her nude body was found by two mining students. She was only 24 there were gas receipts used to place Bundy in the area at that time. And as we know, Bundy had crimes in Utah. The last four deaths that he is possibly linked to happened in that state. First was Nancy Perry Baird, a 23-year-old. She was working at the FINA gas station on the afternoon of July 4, 1975. A patrol officer recalled seeing her around 5.15 p.m., but when the next person showed up to replace her on her shift, she was gone. 
but it was really odd because her things were still there and her car was still in the lot. She was last seen wearing her work smock and blue shorts. She had long strawberry blonde hair, which is a little bit different from the usual dark-haired girls. And she was the mother of a four-year-old boy. Two people thought they saw her at a grocery store two months after she went missing, but that did not pan out to be her. A month after she disappeared, Bundy was arrested in Salt Lake City by the Utah Highway Patrol. Trooper Robert Haywood was responding to a call and had accidentally taken a wrong turn. He ended up in front of a neighbor's house. The parents were away on vacation, but their teen daughters were home alone. And also in front of that house was parked a tan Volkswagen. And this all struck Hayward as very suspicious. The Volkswagen sped off with Hayward in pursuit. When it finally pulled over at a gas station, Hayward questioned its driver. None other than Ted Bundy. Bundy declared that he'd just come from seeing the towering inferno at a drive-in. But unfortunately for him, Hayward knew that movie wasn't showing. He searched the Volkswagen, finding quite a few incriminating items. An ice pick, handcuffs, ski mask, a crowbar, and pantyhose. So this was kind of the beginning of the end. But before he was apprehended, there were two other suspicious missing person cases. Debbie Smith was only 17 years old. Her body was found at Salt Lake International Airport on April 1st, 1976. But unfortunately, this was the extent of the information I could find about her and her death. The last murders that are possibly connected to him is that of Susan Curtis and Debbie Kent. Susan was from Bountiful, Utah. She had ridden her bike 50 miles to attend the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference at Brigham Young University. There was a formal banquet that evening which she attended. And then afterwards, her friends last saw her when she left for her dorm to go brush her teeth. However, when her toothbrush was checked, it had never been used, and she never made it to her dorm. Supposedly, Bundy confessed to burying her body near Price, Utah, but this is unsubstantiated, and her body was never found. She was only 15. Debbie Kent and Susan Curtis lived in the same neighborhood, and both Debbie and Susan's families were at a high school production of The Redhead on November 8, 1974, when Debbie disappeared. Her 11-year-old brother was at the roller rink waiting to get picked up by her. She was to pick him up and return to catch the end of the play, which she had already seen. But the play ended, and she never showed up to pick her brother up. Her car was found still parked in the lot. Oddly, police found a key that matched a set of handcuffs that had been found on Carol Deranche. Bundy had approached Carol Deranche in a mall parking lot dressed as a policeman, saying that her car had been broken into and she needed to come with him. He even knew her license plate number. So she went with him getting into his Volkswagen, thinking that they were going to the station to file a report. But Carol started getting worried when this cop took a wrong turn. When she asked him why he went the wrong way, he just turned and gave her an icy stare. And that's when he grabbed her wrist and handcuffed her, attempted to hit her with a crowbar. She was able to open the door and make a getaway running towards an oncoming car. So in the cases of Debbie Kent and Susan Curtis, it's pretty likely that Bundy murdered them. Bundy was executed in Florida in 1989. And there are many families who wish they could have gotten answers before he died. But he loved the cat and mouse game. 
and I think he loved keeping these deaths to himself, much like he loved visiting the bodies of his victims when they were buried in the woods. He was a total monster who did unspeakable things to many, many women. We definitely know of 30, but there obviously could have been so many more. How frustrating that must be for families of these missing girls. I'm not convinced that he was involved in all these cases that I mentioned, but I would surely say he's responsible for quite a few. There are an odd large number of serial killers that operated in the Pacific Northwest. So until DNA rolls anyone in or out, we can't be sure of anything. So those were the other possible victims of Ted Bundy. I just want to state that while I'm very fascinated by Bundy, I guess you could say maybe he's top of my list of fascinating people, I also find him disgusting and his crimes atrocious. My kid asked me what I was writing about when I was doing this episode, and I numbered off the possible victims as well as telling him about the 30 known ones, and the look on his face was absolute horror. And that's how I feel thinking about all these deaths. While he is an interesting character due to his charisma and his intelligence, it doesn't make him any less of a monster. In fact, to me, it makes him even more terrifying, maybe because he ran under the radar, because no one ever suspected that someone like him would be doing all these horrible things. Maybe that's why we all find him so interesting. But I don't want him glorified in any way. He was a horrible person. Thank you so much for listening this week. So barring any sickness or any retail depression or unfortunate circumstances, I'll be back again next week. Remember, if you like the podcast, it'd be great if you'd leave a favorable review on whatever format you listen to the podcast on. And if you're on Facebook, please join the Red Round Blonde Facebook group or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter. So until then, catch you next week.